Today is officially the last day of Advent. One of my, one of my Catholic friends told me the other day that we really can't say Merry Christmas yet because it's not Christmas yet. It's actually still Advent, technically. So today uh, is our last Sunday uh, of, of Advent, our last week of Advent, which means that our, the last week of Advent only has one day because the new calendar starts tomorrow again with Christmas. Um, and we've been talking about <coughs> what Advent means through this whole season, that Advent is, it means waiting. It's about waiting for the kingdom to come. And we can feel it. I don't care who you are. There's a certain, everybody has a certain sense of lack and need and want that just is generated by living in the world today as it is. That we experience our own sin, we experience sin in the world and evil and unjust, injustice and unrighteousness in the world. And there's just, there's something about each and every one of us, and at least in the back of our minds, that has that nagging question, there's got to be something better than this. There's a lot of beauty in the world for sure. But there's also a lot of evil. And it really calls, it makes that question just ever present in the back of our minds. We can feel the, the weight. That's what Advent is all about. In Christian terms, we understand that through Revelation to be waiting for God to bring his kingdom of righteousness to the world to erase, to undo all the evil injustice of this world and to replace it with a new world of glory and peace and light and righteousness and perfection and everything that our wildest imaginations can conceive about what life really should be like. God has promised to bring those things in. And, and so Advent is the season where we, we really focus, we try to concentrate and sense and feel and be in the presence of that weight so that we can develop our, our, our fan to flame our, our, our desire to see God's kingdom come in so that we might pray for it more heartily, so that we might remember that this is not our home, so that we might remember that something better is coming. And so Advent is a series of waiting. We t- we've been going through different stages of redemptive history presented in the Bible from the first week we did the fall in the Garden of Eden Kingdom, when the kingdom was lost, we talked about kingdom promise, the prophets, and ultimately David, King David, where God promised that one of his descendants would be the eternal king who would someday ascend to an eternal and universal throne somehow. And then uh, last week, we actually talked about the arrival of the king, the first arrival of the king when Jesus was born, and we presented it as an invasion a quiet invasion of the forces of light into enemy territory. Uh, But he didn't come just to be born, just to be a baby, so that we could marvel at at the fact that God had incarnated and had gone through the stages of pregnancy and become a child. He was born to grow into a man so that he might live a perfect and righteous life for us and then die for the punishment our sin deserved. But then he ascended into heaven. And if you read the, the Old Te- or you read the New Testament, Jesus ascends into heaven and you don't see him anymore. So you might, you know, you ask the question, well, what happened then? What happened next? What's he doing now? Uh, and the amazing thing is the Bible actually tells us. We ended last week talking about the prophetic record, how there are different detailed 
prophecies in the Old Testament that lay out in, 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 in very, very detailed manner who Jesus would be, what family he would come from, where he would be born, hundreds of different aspects of Jesus' life and his work on earth uh, as, kind of, as, as one of the best proofs that the Bible is revelation from God because we have copies of those prophecies in black and white prior to the birth of Jesus and the New Testament is historically reliable if we use the same standards of criticism that we use for any other ancient text. Uh, and it proves that the Bible, that the information in the Old Testament knew the beginning before the end. It knew the end before the beginning. It knew what was going to happen in detail, which proves that it comes from a supernatural origin. And so I thought we would start today as we talk about the ascension and the coronation of Jesus, I wanted to show you something else super cool about the Bible and its eternality. The, uh, the, the Bible tells the whole story of what happens next. It tells the ascension where we don't see him anymore, but it also goes on to tell the rest of the story, what happened to Jesus after he disappeared into a cloud. And um, the thing is, though, because all of that happened in the eternal realms, the story's not presented in chronological order in the Bible. The actual coronation is first talked about in 520 or so BC by Daniel. He, he has a vision of the scene. Uh, we see the actual ascension in Acts, which was at 33 AD when Jesus ascended, but the book itself probably written 65 AD. And then another vision, John in the Revelation, which we're going to mostly talk about today in Revelation 5, a filling out of the coronation scene of Jesus. Um, but the cool thing is we as having the whole revelation, we can read it now in chronological order, even though it wasn't given that way. And so I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, we're going to mainly talk about Revelation 5 today, but I thought it would be cool to show the whole scene as it progressed in real time from beginning to end. We'll start with, a, with, a re, uh, uh, with, start with um, something written in 60 AD, and then the next thing will have been written in 525 BC, and the next thing will be 90 AD just so you can see how cool the Bible is, all right? So here, here we go. Um, this is from Acts 1, from Daniel 7 and Revelation 7. Would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? And now when you hear clouds, when you hear clouds, don't think storm cloud or rain cloud. This is not rain clouds. These are the glory clouds of heaven, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, like a rainbow ever, uh, glorious presence that opened up. Think portal between this world and the next. Here we go. And so when they had come together, this is the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now Daniel, 525 BC. And I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now Revelation 90 AD, filling out that story. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, showing us, even in subtle ways, the reality of the eternal realms, the invisible world that we cannot see, which is even more real than the one we inhabit. Thank you for all of the mountains of evidence that you have given us to base our faith in, that that is true, and that you are now ruling over your creation, and that you are caring for your people, and that you are bringing us into the freedom and liberation of the real world, and so we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would help to fan, to aflame our spirits so that we might have eyes to see you and ears to hear of the wonderful things your word teaches And help us, Lord, most of all, to see the glory and beauty of Jesus so that we might worship him. And we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If we were British, we would would instantly recognize that scene as a coronation ceremony. We haven't seen one in our, in our day. The last one was uh, 2nd of June, 1953. Queen Elizabeth was coronated at Westminster Abbey. Um, but we'll probably get to see one pretty soon because the Queen is 91 now and we'll probably, within, certainly within our lifetimes and within a, a few years, we'll get to see the full-blown British coronation service, which has been the same for over a thousand years. There's three main parts, the, the sovereign is presented to and acclaimed by the people. Then the, he or she swears an oath to uphold the law and the church. 
uh, the royal, the British sovereign is still considered to be the supreme head of the, the Anglican church. And then following that, the monarch is anointed with oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. They're invested with regalia, they're crowned, and then they receive the homage of all his or her subjects. The same elements we just saw in this coronation ceremony in the heavenly realms. And uh, if we were ancient Hebrews, we would instantly recognize the same thing because the Brits stole all their, their whole game from the ancient Hebrews uh, as part of the church, well, as, um, because they were trying to replicate these eternal things. And the Hebrews received it as revelation from God to give us a picture, to give us um, what we call typology or these pictures, these physical pictures of spiritual realities so that we could have mental footholds on what it is that God is doing in the world, who Jesus is and what he's doing. So what that means is that these are things I just read. They're visions. Um, They're true they're true visions, but they're pictures. They're pictures of supernatural realities that our three-dimensionally bound minds do not have the power to comprehend the beauty of here now in this fallen realm. And so God gives us these things as, as, as a way to help us to understand what's going on. They're true things. Jesus is ruling. Jesus is king. But they are really just representations of a reality that's a hundred billion times more beautiful than even what's shown to us here. But at least it gives us a start in getting it, right? And so, as we've been going through our Advent series, talking about, you know, the the theme of our Advent series overall is waiting for the kingdom. There's all these themes of kingship that keep coming up, which, again, is hard for us to understand, raised in Western democracies, but we have enough of a residual understanding of it to be able to, to grasp onto it. There's, these, and there's three themes in particular that pop out of this coronation ceremony. There's the king, who is he, what has he done? There's the kingdom, which is what he's doing now. And then the people, what does it mean to be one of his subjects, one of his chosen people? And that's what we're going to answer today as we look into this text. And so the big idea, the main theme, the thesis of this passage is this, that the eternal king is now in power, liberating his people into the real world. The eternal king is now in power, liberating his people into the real world. Let's break that down one part at a time. First, the eternal king. If you start looking at Revelation 5, the scene opens and John is weeping. He's weeping loudly in our text. It's really, he is continually sobbing. He's overcome with this incredible sadness because God the King, God, the King of the universe, God the Father is shown enthroned and he has the scroll, which is, uh, it, the scroll is, it's really the book of redemptive, it's the book of God's eternal plan of redemptive judgment, how God is going to judge and save the world. And that's the constant theme in the Old Testament, that God saves his people through redemptive judgment. There's judgment that comes upon the earth, but God saves his people who are trusting in him through it. Think the ark. Judgment comes upon the earth and the flood. God saves his people through that judgment on the ark. Think about Red Sea. 
God's people are running and being liberated from the slavery of, of, of Egypt and, and God rescues them by bringing them through the Red Sea and then the Egyptians try to follow the seas cave in in judgment but God's people are rescued through that judgment. The same thing is happening here. The next part of the book of Revelation are the seven seals being broken open which are representative of God's judgment on the earth. But the, the big point of it is that God is saving his people through that judgment who have faith in him. And John is overcome with this awful sadness because they've just announced that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, no one is worthy to crack open this scroll and begin the process of God's redemption. And John is thinking to himself, this is 90 AD, John is thinking to himself, what about the church? What about the promises that God made? What this means, if no one can crack open this scroll... It means that redemption is not coming. It means that this world is all we get. It means that this, the suffering of this life is, is it. All the promises will never come to pass. And so John is afraid that no one will be able to begin the redemption. And then... Through the cloud, the cloud, the glory clouds of heaven, Jesus appears into the throne room of God's court in the heavenly places. He's just ascended from heaven, gone into the glory clouds, gone through the portal from this world to the next, and just pops out, boom, after his, after his winning the victory over Satan and sin and death on the cross. He's resurrected, he's on earth, he's ascended, he goes through the cloud, and now he's in God's presence And he walks up and he takes the scroll from God's hand. It's the only time in the Bible anything ever gets taken from God. Every other time it's God gives. God gives messages to angels. God gives mercy to this. It's the only time in the Bible someone walks up and in his own merit, his own worthiness, is able to take something out of God's hand. And so who is this? This king of glory who just marches into the throne room and pulls the scroll of God's eternal plan of redemptive judgment out of the hand of God and starts cracking open seals? Psalm 24 is saying, telling this whole story again in poetic form from, again, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, talking about the one who's worthy to ascend the holy mountain, who has clean hands, who has all these attributes of worthiness and righteousness. It's only Jesus. Jesus ascends the holy mountain and and it's pictured as an eternal Jerusalem where the ancient gates are opened up so the king who's mighty in battle, who's just defeated Satan on the cross by giving up himself in, in, in love for us, he defeats Satan through his love for us and his obedience to the Father, allowing the world to slip away because it is doesn't mean anything. And he wins the victory and he comes in as, in as the mighty king who has won the victory through love. The ancient doors open up and he walks in. And, and then after that, everybody breaks out singing. There's like three rounds of singing. In the ancient world, songs, in the ancient plays, Songs weren't just filler, they were uh, interpretive of the action. And so what the songs are telling us is what just happened. And what they're telling us is that the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb who is standing 
as though slain, speaking about his, rep, his, his resurrection power that he was killed but still lives, there's three reasons why Jesus is worthy. And the first is that he was slain. That's not murdered. If you were ancient Hebrew, you would have understood that word to mean sacrifice as in the temple, the sacrifice for sins, because he made the sacrifice for sins. Two, he ransomed, uh, two, by his blood, he ransomed a people for God. Ransom means bought out of slavery. And it says they're singing a new song. New songs are always sung at great moments of redemptive history. Think at the shores of the Red Sea after God saved his people through the Red Sea. Miriam, the sister of Moses, sang a new song about redemption. And so here again, as God is again won a victory of redemption for his people, they're singing this new song of being ransomed, not from the slavery of Egypt, but from sin and from death. And so really ransomed, a better way to think about it is that Jesus bought for us eternal life by his blood. And the third thing is he has made us a kingdom of priests to our God. Kingdom would bring to mind the images of safety and security of a king who had an army and a military to protect you so that you wouldn't be raided by marauding tribes that would come in and steal your children and wipe out your crops. That was reality in the ancient world. And so to be in a kingdom meant safety. Think Camelot, a perfect kingdom a perfect safety, a perfect security. And priests really talks about us being in the presence of God, talks about us being representatives to the world for God, but it also speaks about us being able to be in his presence. And that the, and that the thought of all of these things, all of heaven just breaks into these three rounds of song, the the the, the the earthly creatures, the men, first they all sing, and then all of the heavenly realms sings, and then after that, all creation, everything above and on and under the world, all sing these praises to God, basically this giant, never-ending, heavenly coronation party just breaks off, and everybody's just praising God. Because they are overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. They're overwhelmed with joy and gratitude at the worthiness of Christ and what he has done for them. There's a part, you know, in, um, this is how we think, of, we could think about it. In, you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's a part, at the very end of the movie, if you haven't seen it, there's a soldier, Private Ryan. He's behind enemy lines. All of his brothers have been killed and they send an expeditionary force to rescue him and bring him out and send him home so his parents don't lose all of their sons. He's the last one surviving. So they end up, Captain Miller takes his team and they find Private Ryan and they end up having to fight this massive battle at this bridge and at the end, very, very end, Captain Miller and all of his team are killed Captain Miller gets hit in the chest and Ryan comes up and finds him and Miller with his last dying breath, he just gasps out. He says, earn it, earn it. Now people freak out about that because you think in our minds, earn it means earn your salvation. We can't use that as an illustration, but that's not what he's saying, right? 
Ryan's already saved. He's already been saved. What he's saying is, he's saying, I want you to live your life in gratitude for what just happened here. Miller and his whole team all died to save him. And Miller is saying, go live your life in a sense of, in, in, in as much gratitude as you ought for what just happened here today. And at the end of the movie, you see this old man, it's Ryan, he's an old man now, he's in his 70s and he's, he's visiting Normandy, the graveyards at Normandy with his whole family. He's got his wife, his kids, all his grandkids. He finds Captain Miller's grave sites. He's just breaking out in tears. And he looks at his wife and he says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. She's like, what are you talking about? He wasn't saying, tell me I've been a good man because I'm trying to earn something that hasn't happened yet. He's saying, tell me that I have lived a life of gratitude and love for how worthy this man was for laying down his life for me. And I mean, if that, that is just a small picture. What, what, what Miller earned for Ryan was 40 years of biological life. 50 years, 60 years, maybe. Which is a wonderful thing. Family, grandkids, beautiful, wonderful gifts of God. But Jesus, what Jesus won for us are, is eternal life in the heavenly realms. Why, why aren't we walking around every day like Ryan was before the, in, in that graveyard, before that gravestone? Why? If what we've received is so much greater, well, this is one of those uncomfortable parts of the Bible that really contrasts us and gives us an example of the way we are different from the saints in heaven. Why aren't we like this all the time? Part of it is because we are under, we're being crushed by the sin in the world. We're being crushed by evil and injustice in the world. We're being, we're guilty and, sh- and we have shame for our own sin and the bad things that we've done. But another part of it is, is that we are spiritually dull. Some of the great old, old Puritan prayers really talk about this, talking about us being cold-hearted, being dull of senses. We're so saturated with the physical realm as the real world that we can't, that we are, um, it dulls our senses to perceive the reality of the heavenly realms. Paul talks about this too, about us being, in spiritual darkness that we see in a mirror dimly that we don't aren't able to see reality clearly and so we don't walk around in the amount of gratitude that we ought to every single day we let little things stress us out when we possess the heavenly realms and so you know what this here's the takeaway the takeaway is that spiritual disciplines, our prayer life, our devotional life, are the things that we do to keep in conscious awareness of the spiritual reality that surrounds us, the fanning into a fire the Bible talks about. I usually, I tend to, I, you know, I always have thought about that as like, psych yourself up. Like before the big game, you know, the coach comes in, gives you the big pep talk, trying to psych everybody up. And that that's what that is. Really, spiritual disciplines are all about just psyching ourselves up. But really what it is, it's not that. It's, it's blowing off the fog. 
It's fanning the flame of the Spirit within us so that we are better able to sense the spiritual reality of Christ as worthy, as victor, as, rede- as redeemer, having ransomed us from sin and death so that we would live our lives in such a way that honors him because he is worthy of that honor. So that we can join in with the eternal coronation party that's happening in the heavens all the time, even in the worst days. Okay, point one. Point two. The eternal king is now in power. The eternal king is now in power. I want you to look at one verse, Revelation 5, 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is after the coronation, after the enthronement and now Jesus is extending his power throughout the world. I was racking my brain all week trying to think about some sort of illustration from science fiction movies that would come close to even capturing what this is talking about. Maybe, maybe Jared would be able to think of something, but I couldn't think of nothing. And that's because I don't think there is one. I don't think there's anything that can capture what this is talking about. It's saying that Jesus, who is the union of God and man, Jesus is a, fully a man, human man with a human body, He's the union of God and man, and that means that he is the intersection or the conduit of divine power from heaven to the earth. Up till now, up till this point, really the seven spirits of God, which is a poetic way of saying the Holy Spirit, seven is a perfect number of perfection. The seven spirits of God are really confined in the heavenly courtroom of God. But now that Jesus has ascended and been coronated and enthroned, now Jesus, the man, united with divinity, seated in power, which are the seven horns, the seven spirits of God are now pouring out through him, through his body, from God the Father, out into all the earth. Just try and get a mental picture of that. There's no science fiction thing that even comes close to that. Nothing can touch the reality of Jesus channeling spirit power from God to the entire earth. Which explains um, why it is that the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God. You know, if 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 you're here, you got trouble with that, I feel you. I spent most, most of my life angry at the Christian God for that reason. Before I came to Christ, actually months before I came to Jesus, I had two huge resentments against Christianity. We used to be part, I was, we, came, we came up through Alcoholics Anonymous and we used to write these long resentment inventories and I was in the midst of the process of writing out these things about who you're mad at and why and it was Christianity. <laughs> Two huge resentments. One was the concept of hell, how it is that a loving God could ever cause his people, his creation, to be separated from him. And two was this idea of Christian exclusivity, how it is 
why would God only give one way? That doesn't seem fair. And I was super upset. I was really mad about it and upset about it. Uh, and then one day I, went to, I, was, I was literally tricked into an altar call at the Rock Church, and I went to bed that night angry about being tricked into this altar call. Uh, I was angry about, how, about Christianity and how it could claim to be the only way to God. And then I woke up the next morning, and I, was just, I just understood it just all of a sudden made a lot of sense to me why it was that God wasn't obligated to give us any more than one way. Why it was that we, that it's merciful that God gave us a way at all. And that it's not exclusive. It's the most inclusive thing that's ever been on the face of the earth. Every tribe, nation, tongue, and people are invited in. Everyone, anyone is invited to come into the throne room and be part of God's kingdom and receive his power, but you just can't make up your own way. You can't, go to, you can't go to the White House and just walk in a side door and say, hey, here I am. That will not work. You cannot get into the coronation of the next king of England just showing up and coming in your own way. The reason is because there is no one else who is worthy to bridge the gap between God's holiness and righteousness and our sinfulness. It's just not a matter. It's not a matter of doing things right. It's not a matter of trying to do or be good, as we say in our membership interviews, because no one can be good enough. The requirement is absolute perfection. If God is perfectly holy, that means that unholiness, unrighteousness cannot be in his presence. It would defile all of heaven. And so God, somehow, God has to find a way to make us holy, to give us perfect righteousness so that we can stand before him. And the way he's done that is Jesus. Jesus is perfectly righteous, and now he is in the heavens worthy because of that to be the channel of supernatural power out into the earth. And so it's not a matter of trying to do or be good. It's just a matter of trusting that God's word is true and accepting the way that he has given us, which is available to anybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Anyone can have access to God and be accepted into his kingdom and be called one of his adopted children. And all it takes is a little humility to say, okay, I'm not perfectly ethically righteous. But that's what I need. Jesus gives it to me. I'll take it. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus as the conduit of divine spirit power to the earth can set us free from our cold heartlessness, our our dimness of spiritual senses and our, out of our slavery of sin and death, which brings us to the third point. The eternal king is now in power, liberating his people into the real world. I love that last point. I love saying it like that because we're so used to thinking about this as the real world because we can see it. Um, <clears throat> But the reality is we know scientifically that everything that we see as solid is actually 99.9% open, empty space. It's really a construct of 
particles that God has created through mathematical principles to create the illusion of solidness, but this is really only a very small part of the real world. And we know that's true. We know that's true from the prophetic record. If God can call out 300 prophecies, giving detailed information about who Jesus would be, where he would be born, what he would do, how he would die, and all the details therein, hundreds, even thousands of years before it happened, we know that that information came from outside of time, from outside of space-time, which means there must be a greater reality. And that reality is more true than anything that we experience here, even though we can see this. That doesn't really mean anything. And Jesus is now engaged as the sovereign over the universe, as the conduit between heaven and earth, pouring out spiritual power to all who would humbly receive it, Jesus is now liberating his people out of this realm of death and into the real world. And this is what it means. This is what it means to be a king and a priest in the kingdom. This is what it means. These are all, again, pictures of the supernatural reality that we can't understand, but they they convey truth to us as much as we can get. God talks to us in baby talk. Relatively, you know what I mean? So here's what this means. This is what, we have to span out a little bit from into the rest of Revelation and some other parts of the Bible, but to be one of the subjects of God's kingdom, to be one of Jesus' people means this, that we are first immune to the second death. There's two deaths listed in the Bible. Physical death, we're separated from our bodies. And we live in the underworld until the last day, the judgment, when we are all brought before God. And at that time, you'll have two choices. You can stand before God based on your own righteousness, or you can stand before God based on the righteousness of Jesus given to you freely as a cloak, as a wedding garment that you put on, as a white gown. And what that protects us from is the second death. We are then, we are then escorted into the coronation party and the supper of the Lamb and the eternal realms and glory forever. Two, we are confessed by Christ at the last judgment. Jesus is the prosecuting attorney. Pictures, again. But Jesus, the prosecuting attorney, when we come up to judgment, Jesus says, that one's mine. He is acquitted. Next. We are given the white garments of a wedding gown. There's that prof- There's the parable where the there's the, there's the marriage supper and one person is found without a wedding gown and he's thrown out. It's because God has given us Christ's righteousness as a gown, as a cloak to put on. We inherit the new creation. All of it. Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ. That Christ, by his own merit, has earned the right to inherit the whole new kingdom. And I I can't prove this from the Bible, but I think my best guess is that the entire universe and and not just the three-dimensional reality of it that we can see, but the multi-dimensional reality of it that we can't will be opened up for us and we will have an eternity to explore all of the celestial realms as our home and our dominion. And if it's not that, then that's just a picture of what it really is, but something way better than that. 
Revelation 2.7 says we have access, unlimited access to the tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't have the tree of life. They were promised it if they were obedient, but they weren't. Because Christ has given us his righteousness when we enter into the heavenly realms, we have access to the tree of life, which means eternal life. Not eternal life and suffering. It's hard sometimes to think about that because we think this forever? I don't know. That sounds like it sucks. But not this forever. Perfection and glory forever. Uh, We have six. We have dominion over all the nations. I think that's a bigger picture of the universe again or whatever all the creation is. And seven, we will somehow sit together with Jesus on his throne. I don't even know what that means, but somehow that's where the analogies or the, the illustrations start to break down and it's not even king and subject anymore, but we're being brought into his life and brought into an eternal reality that's, again, bigger than we can imagine. I, you know, think about all the supernatural powers that characters in science fiction movies have. It's all of those things and more somehow that we will reign in the life and power of Christ forever. Now, sometimes it, it blows my mind that as a Christian pastor, my, basically my job is to try to convince people that that is better than this. My job is basically to try to convince people that eternal life and blessedness and joy and reigning in an eternal realm and perfection and glory forever is better than the suck of this world. You'd think that'd be a pretty easy sell, wouldn't you? You'd think people would be like, uh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I get it. You know, we, we've been talking about that those, those are ideas that are so big they're hard to comprehend. And there's also a big part of us that says, too good to be true. Sounds great, sounds beautiful, too good to be true. Well, I hope we dispelled that last week. And if you didn't hear that, you can listen to the sermon from last week. The reality is the best evidence, the best empirical evidence suggests that it is true. But another reason is that it means it means us letting go of the now. And there's a certain comfort in grabbing on to the little bit of comfort of the now. Jesus was worthy ultimately because he, he remained in allegiance with the Father even though it meant losing everything he had, even life. He remained in perfect allegiance and faithfulness to God even when it meant that things of this world, physical things, were being taken away from him, stripped away from him. And he, was, he did that to the point of death. One of the commentators I read this week hit me like a sledgehammer. He said, he said, Jesus lost physically, but he won spiritually. Man. I'll tell you what you don't want to do. What you don't want to do is win physically and lose spiritually. That's not a good ending. And remaining in allegiance with the Father will, will cost you, at least something of the world. For us, in the Western world, now not so much. A little ridicule, maybe, some loss of uh, social or cultural power or esteem. Very little things concern, you know, concerning or considering 
uh, our brothers in Eastern Africa or other parts of the world. Um, listen, or I, I preached this same sermon earlier this week here in this chapel. It was full of our homeless ministry. Hundred-something homeless people. And I preached this very same sermon um, <clears throat> Pretty much, it was packed out. It's cool to be here on the home field. We usually do it downstairs, but everybody was in here that week. And there was this woman sitting right there where Austin is sitting, pretty much a homeless woman. Her name was Kim, and she was like in, in involuntary sobs almost through the entire sermon. But I could tell they were tears of joy. And afterwards, I went up to her. I thought at first, I thought maybe she was gravely ill. She had her head shaved, and she was older, older woman. And I thought, maybe she's gravely ill and close to death, and she's hearing this message, and, and just sometimes saints that, are, that know they're about to die have a sense uh, the veil between this world and the next becomes very thin for them. Uh, the distractions of this world fade out, and they can see more clearly. And I thought maybe that was it, but... You know, I went up to her, it wasn't that. She wasn't ill. She was just overjoyed. She was just overjoyed with the message. She was so overwhelmed with gratitude and with joy at the reality of this that she literally just cried through the whole service. You know? You know what, you know what Kim had? The one thing she had that was Nothing. <laughs> There's a great part in the Jesus Storybook Bible talking about Naaman, the Syrian general who comes to be cleansed from his leprosy and he doesn't want to do what the prophet says because he's super arrogant and he's, well, and he's rich. And, and, the, and the Storybook Bible says, the one, thing that Naaman, the one thing Naaman needed was nothing and nothing was the one thing Naaman didn't have. And it's super easy for us in the West, for the wealthy, that's all of you, in the West, to be distracted by our wealth and our entertainment, to be distracted from the reality that the world sucks, the pain and the suffering in it. But Kim was homeless. She didn't have anything. She knew that the world sucked. But what she did have was a burning heart on fire of gratitude and of joy that these things were true and that they were true for her. She had no distractions to build the reality of the heavenly promises just flooding her mind with the brilliance of Christ. And so here it is. My, this is, in conclusion, my Christmas exhortation to you is this. Let's all try to be like Kim. Let's spend the rest of the holidays fanning the flames and sharpening our spiritual senses so that as we open, even as we open our gifts tomorrow with our families and enjoy the blessing that that is that God has given us in that, let's do that and thank God for it, but let's let them call our attention to the greater things, the greater realities, that the victory has been won over sin by Jesus through his death and resurrection, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is now connecting us to God through Jesus 
and that there are rivers of spiritual power flowing out of the heavens for us to tap into as we shake our spiritual lethargy and chip away the muck from our senses, our supernatural senses, we can feel and experience that. And also, let's rejoice in the sure and certain hope that we will be resurrected into supernatural spirit power where we will reign with Christ in dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings of your word. Lord, we confess that we are cold-hearted, that we are dull of senses. We are so wrapped up with the material world in so many ways, Lord. Either we're chasing down material things and worshiping money and, and possessions, or we're angry at the possessions that we don't have and the money that we don't have and worshiping money just the same or we're so convinced that there's some thing in this world that is going to satiate the deepest parts of our heart and spirit that's going to give us the peace that we don't have. And the reality is none of that, Lord. None of that, none of that can quiet the subtle discontent that we all feel. None of it can answer the question that's nagging in the back of our head. There has to be something better than this. Because let's face it, Lord, we've tried a hundred times already. We've got the new thing. We've achieved the new thing. We've achieved the new title, the new job, the new place. We've got the new car. We've got the relationship. We've overcome the disease. We've achieved the status and recognition. And it's cool for a minute, but it never lasts. It never fills or satisfies that deep yearning that we feel in our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to put the material world in its right perspective, not to separate ourselves from it, but to see it as your good gift and blessing but to not seek our ultimate satisfaction in it, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be enlivened in our spirits and to seek you so that your spirit may give us life and produce in us the type of gratitude that we ought to have based on who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.